Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. With me, as always, is John Farragon. Hey, John. Hi, Mariana. Hope you're doing well today. Thank you. So on our last few episodes, we dove into rapid start and the methods for implementation. Most importantly, the rationale behind rapid start. We even discussed the appropriate and inappropriate regimens to be used. Now, a few episodes back, we also talked about HIV prevention using PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis. And on today's episode, we're gonna be spending some time talking about PEP or post-exposure prophylaxis. So John, for starters, what exactly is the difference between PrEP and PEP? Yeah, thanks, Mary. And that's really a great question and a great way to kind of start this whole discussion. So, so PrEP and PEP are really kind of similar what they actually do. So, so both of, both of them will prevent HIV infection uh, through the use of medications. However, PrEP, as we've talked about before, is given prior exposure. So hence it's called PRE, right? The PRE, pre-exposure. So it happens before a person's exposed um, to HIV. So the HIV medication is taken prior to sex, as an example, uh, to prevent HIV infection from occurring. Um, this is currently done right now with, with um, either tenofibrilafenamide, intracitabine, or tenofibrilafenamide, intracitabine, and that's either um, Descovy or Truvada. Um, and that's usually taken every day to prevent HIV. So, you know, hopefully in the future, we'll have a podcast on, as I'm sure in the future, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the use of injectable PrEP um, for prevention using a drug called cabotegavir. That's still being invest- investigated, but, you know, right now we have pill versions, but there will be um, potentially injectables and in, in other, other formulations as well for PrEP. Now, PEP, right, so not PrEP, but PEP is, is on the other hand, is, is different in that it's actually used after the exposure. So, um, hence the word post. So it's post-exposure instead of pre-exposure, right? So, so, so PEP is commonly used for, for people who potentially have been exposed and the PEP is used after the exposure has occurred. And, and this can further be classified as what we call occupational PEP or non-occupational PEP. So the occupational PEP um, are, are, are given, for example, like after, after a healthcare worker gets exposed through maybe a needle stick. So, they, so if somebody gets a needle stick from somebody, from somebody when they're injecting a drug, that would be an occupational exposure or if somebody gets blood splash in their eye in the emergency room during, during a procedure, um, those are occupational, occupational exposures. The, the other thing that's very common where, where PEP is used is what we call NPEP, which is non-occupational PEP. And this is typically done um, usually for, for sexual assaults or for other sexual exposures where somebody might need post-exposure prophylaxis. Okay, so let's break this down a bit further. Can you tell us a little bit about OPEP and NPEP? Yeah, so, so this is a common question too. Again, the strategies are very similar for how you manage it, but the occupational ones are, are really common, commonly done in most of the time in the, in the hospital setting. Um, and a lot of times it's, uh, it, it can be healthcare workers who may be exposed. As I mentioned before, like splashing of blood in a, during a procedure, um, or a needle stick injury, for example, but it's also other things. For example, sometimes a firefighter or police officer, they might get they might get spit on, for example, or and there may be blood in in um, um, in the sputum. Um, they, they may actually get get bit by a patient. So all these all these things that happen um, a lot of times on the street um, and oftentimes are are, are happening in, in people uh, where people are actually in the hospital where where they're being evaluated. Those are really occupational occupational exposures. 
So NPEP is really kind of, um, um, is, is, is most of the time is going to be used for sexual assault. So if somebody is sexually assaulted and, and they're, they're not sure of the, of the assailant, whether or not they have HIV or not, they will often be offered, offered post-exposure prophylaxis. Very highly stressful, difficult situations oftentimes um, for, uh, for the people involved. But again, uh, the, you know, PEP is often offered, offered, offered to, to those patients. But it's also occurs when people come to either ER and state, for example, they're having consensual, consensual sex uh, with another person and they have an exposure. For example, the condom breaks during sex or there was no protection used during sex and the patient gets nervous the next day and says, you know, I want to go on on post-exposure prophylaxis. And these are all these are all potential examples for why why we, we would use uh, we would use we would use PrEP. But really, anytime there's a high risk exposure for HIV acquisition or risk for HIV acquisition, we have to be thinking uh, about post-exposure prophylaxis. Now, once they, um, once they, um, uh, and especially in these sexual, the consensual sex situations, once they've con completed their post-exposure prophylaxis, we often um, will refer them out to our PrEP program for pre-exposure prophylaxis for future events that, that may actually occur to them. So it's not some, obviously this wouldn't be appropriate for a sexual assault in most cases, but for someone who has, you know, where the condom broke, they can certainly, um, you know, we can certainly offer them pre-exposure prophylaxis once they complete their 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 28 days of post-exposure. But regardless of whether or not you need uh, occupational PEP or non-occupational PEP or OPEP or NPEP, both are essentially going to utilize similar strategies for for the prevention of, of HIV infection. Okay, so how do providers define whether someone's been exposed to HIV? Like, how do they determine whether to administer PEP to someone? Yes, it's it's really it's really interesting. So I, I kind of alluded to this, but in the setting of the sexual assault patients, right? You often don't know the HIV status of the sexual of the sexual the person who's who's the assailant or somebody who the person who's done the assaulting, right? You often don't know that, so you have to assume that they are HIV infected, and then we offer offer on. Um, and uh, NPEP to those to those patients. Sometimes we actually know that the source patient, the patient who's actually um, who the who the healthcare provider actually got the needle stick from, they call them the source patient. We actually, if you know that they're HIV infected, it's a little bit more complex and requires a little bit more a little bit more time. Uh, and also trying to figure out what regimen they're on and maybe tailoring the PEP regimen to that person. But those are really kind of kind of advanced questions. But uh, for the most part, oftentimes in the setting of PEP. We often don't know the the status of the HIV uh, or the, the HIV status of of the person who's considered the source patient. Um, uh, you know, either, either the patient who's actually who the, who the nurse is getting the needle stick from. Uh, those patients are often not identified as having HIV uh, at at the time, and, and we often don't know that answer. Which is why PEP is often used for 28 days, regardless of whether whether or not we know the status or not. Now, if they are, we do find out. You know. Subsequently, if we find out the patient that the source patient is not HIV infected, we often can stop the post-exposure prophylaxis for uh, for the nurse or for the uh, for the person who's been, who's been uh, been uh, potentially exposed. So hopefully that hopefully that's clear. It's kind of difficult to answer, but I think I think we've we've gotten to the main points there. Yeah, definitely lots to remember. Um, so now, is there a specific time frame for using PEP? Yeah, it's it's really important, and it's probably um, you know I, we say this all the time, but really, Mariana Pep, the post exposure is really one of the few quote unquote what I call emergencies um, in HIV. And the efficacy of post exposure prophylaxis or Pep is really time sensitive. Um, 
the, the current guidelines recommend that the first doses for PEP should be given as soon as possible. Even if we don't, um, while we often don't know the exact time for optimal, optimal efficacy, we do know that PEP should be started within hours of exposure rather than days. So even while they're waiting for lab results to come in and, and, you're, and you're evaluating the patient, we often will proceed and start PEP anyways, um, even while we're waiting for lab work for the patient. And, and the national guidelines, and the, these, are, these are from national consensus guidelines that have been out there uh, for, for many years, really consider the 72 hours after the exposure as kind of the outer limit of the opportunity to, to, to initiate PEP. So if it's beyond that 72 hours, most of the time, you know, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a provider by provider decision based on, you know, the situation. But for the most part, um, providers may still offer PEP beyond 72 hours. Or most of the time, if it's, be, if it's after 72 hours, the, 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 the PEP is, is probably less likely to, to, be, to be efficacious or less likely to work. So it's important to note that the 72-hour outside limit really is based only on animal studies. So there's no human data, which I think really, if a patient is really pushing the provider to say, listen, I really want to go on PEP, even though it's where you're at, you're beyond 72 hours, sometimes the providers will still will still do it. In fact, you know, a great place for us to go, uh, go to is, is look to the ATC for help with these situations. We have experts. And we also have the National Clinical Consultation Line that you can call that's, that's located in San Francisco that actually helps you to make those decisions. So even if you're beyond 72 hours, you can call the, the uh, National uh, Clinical Consultation Line and get assistance in helping to decide what to do. So the exposures beyond, beyond that 72 hours, um, and, you, and you want assistance, you can call, call that PEP line, and they are, they are certainly helpful uh, in, in helping you make that decision. So, Marianne, I want to say one other thing. It's really important today um, that, that we're not going to cover every single PEP situation, but I think providers should really look at additional resources or consult the PEP line if they have either someone who has HIV infection, for example, or somebody um, is, uh, is looking at using PEP in somebody who's pregnant. These are kind of real technical and kind of a little more advanced questions to answer in a, in a short podcast. So the PEP line certainly can be really helpful for people. Definitely. So let's dive a little bit deeper. Can you tell us about what medications are usually used for PEP? Yeah, so that's a great question too, Mariana. So great. So you decided you want to use PEP? and you want to put it, put somebody on it, what do you actually do? So there's actually guidelines to help us decide what regimens to use. So one of the most common regimens um, that, that's used is a combination of, of dolutegravir, which is a drug called Tivica, and then in combination with a drug called tenofovir, disoproxofumare with emtricitabine, which is called Truvada. Now, you remember Truvada is also used for, for pre-exposure for PrEP, right? Um, and this is, this is, but this for PEP, it's actually two pills, and you give dolutegravir, an integrase, uh, an integrase inhibitor, plus, plus, uh, plus Truvada. Another way to do it is to use a drug called Icentris or Raltegravir, which is given twice daily, also in combination with, with Truvada. So this would be a twice daily regimen with a total of three tablets per day, where the, the Tivicate Truvada is only, is only two pills a day. Really, uh, you know, differences, you know, a little, some differences in some of the drug interactions, but for the most part, very, uh, very, very similar, um, similar, uh, similar medications for, 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 for PEP uh, efficacy. So both regimens, two nukes um, in a nucleotide, uh, so nu two nucleosides and nucleotide reverse transcriptase inhibitor. And then there's an integrase strand transfer inhibitor involved, involved as, well, as well. So really both drugs are both regimens have three drugs in the PEP regimen, but there's two versus three pills um, uh, per, per, per day. And again, that's different from, from PrEP where PrEP is only using two pills uh, or two drugs, right, in, in a single pill, 
where, where, where post-exposure prophylaxis, we had an extra drug, we had that integrase inhibitor for an extra layer of protection to hopefully prevent HIV infection from setting up. So the regimen duration is also important too. Um, currently the guidelines recommend that we do a total of 28 days. So, so, rough, so basically four weeks of therapy is what will be required to complete the entire PEP regimen. So that's kind of what we do for, for, for most patients uh, who, again, assuming that the patient doesn't have HIV infection um, and, and it's a pretty straightforward case, these are the regimens that you'd probably see most commonly. Ooh, that sounds like a lot. Um, so what if a patient has no insurance? What are the options for them? Yeah, so this, this comes up a lot, right, Mariana? So we have patients who come in and they don't have insurance. Or the other thing, too, that happens, sometimes we have patients that, especially in, in the setting of, um, of non-occupational exposures where it's a sexual assault, uh, so, sometimes uh, you might have a student who may not want um, the information to go on their parents' insurance. So these things come up quite a bit when we're trying to figure this out. So the most important thing, uh, the, the logistical piece of providing PEP for people is, you know, can they get the medications and are they insured? It comes up all the time. So some institutions, and I'll just give you, I'm using the example of ours. You know, again, I'm at Albany Medical Center. And it's not that we do everything the way it should be done, but, you know, we, we, we've been doing this a long time. Um, but we have what we call starter, starter packs, all right, that contain an initial supply of the PEP regimen. So some states actually require the hospitals to provide this by law at initiation of, of PEP. So for example, in New York State, 28 days is required by law for any patient who's under 18 uh, in, in New York State. <clears throat> if you're over 18, only a seven-day um, uh, seven uh, supply is required, all right? So it's a little bit different. So what we decided to do based on some cost of cost analysis, some of some different regimens, we actually now give out the entire 28-day regimen um, from, from what I'll call an automated dispensing machine. So um, some there's different brands that are out there. The one we have is the Pixis machine. So these are machines that actually are, are linked to our pharmacy system that the nurses can go in and actually take out medications for patients for administration immediately or for even for, for home use um, when they're when they're when they're in the emergency room. So this, the automated dispensing machines are, are are pretty common in most hospitals. Our regimen involves generic uh, uh, tenofovir DF and lamivudine. That's what we decided to do, very similar to imtricitabine, and then. We actually uh, use use raltegavir as well. These are some of the cheaper drugs that are out there, but still efficacious for PEP. And, and while it's not specifically on the national guidelines, it's the New York State DOH guidelines where we are, New York State, um, have this as an option. So that's what we use. And it, it allowed us to give people the full 28 days of, of, of treatment, regardless of what their age is. So that's that's really helpful. And I think that's um that makes that that eliminates a lot of the complexities of insurance, et cetera. So if a patient leaves with the entire 28 days, they don't have to worry about going back to a provider worrying about they usually have to follow up, but they don't have to worry about getting the rest of the medications. Because um, if you only gave somebody a seven day supply, they still have to get the extra 21 days of balance of medications from some some someplace. Which really, oftentimes, if patients don't follow up, they can actually stop the meds and not and, and they won't complete the full 28 days and only get seven, and that's not good for people either. So again, where where the states where there's states, uh, if you're in a state where there's no um, starter packs required and you're not required, you're not doing this in 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 the automated dispensing machines in the ER, and a lot of times manufacturers or even samples or vouchers can be used uh, and maybe of, of assistance when starting PEP for, for some of these patients. So it gets a little complex when, uh, when, when they don't have insurance and you don't have a lot of required starter packs, but it can be done and, and it can be done successfully. Right. So something that's come to mind as you're talking about all this is side effects. How do providers monitor and manage side effects with PEP? 
Yeah, so this is a common one too that we often get questions on, especially when they're starting it. But most patients do well with the current PEP regimens that are on the guidelines. Although some, sometimes you may see some side effects. The gastrointestinal ones are the most common ones, such as nausea, upset stomach, you can see vomiting and diarrhea. Those are the most common. In addition, some patients may report headache, um, fatigue and insomnia, but the GI ones, the gastrointestinal ones, are really, really the most, uh, really the most common ones. So, so what do we do to manage this? I think up front, a lot of the providers will provide antiemetics. They'll provide drugs like Ondansetron, which is called Zofran, uh, Promethazine, um, Prochlorperazine. These are all different drugs that are used to to prevent people from from getting nausea and vomiting. Um, and sometimes these things can help. If somebody has severe diarrhea, some of the antidiarrheal medications, for example, like loperamide uh, or Imodium can potentially be, be helpful. In some r- very rare cases, side effects can be severe enough where providers actually have to consider changing the regimen. And again, that, that gets a little complex too. And that's where that, the, again, that the, the clinical consultation center can be helpful or even experts within the ATC can, um, can help you to kind of tailor the regimen if somebody's having severe side effects and they're at risk for not completing the full 28 days. But just notice that in both of the preferred regimens, the use of of of, uh, uh, of Truvada, the Tenofovir DF with emtricitabine, is included, and this can potentially, in rare cases, lead to renal toxicity from the Tenofovir. So, so one of the things that we um, that really patients should really use this with caution if somebody has impaired renal function. Uh, or those may, might be at high risk for impaired renal function. And those people really um, should, be, should be monitored on a regular basis. And that's what we do for pretty, pretty much for everybody, uh, making sure we're checking what we call a CBC or a complete blood count, and along with kidney and liver function tests at baseline. So the, they, call them, they call it a profile, which allows you to kind of look at um, all, all, the, all the different markers. And we usually do that at baseline and usually should do it again at two weeks after starting PEP. So you do have to have some follow-up when you have patients on, on these regimens. Okay. Now I'm guessing that folks taking PEP might commonly also be taking other medications. So what about drug interactions? Is there anything providers should be worried about when giving PEP? Yeah, so this is also important too. And again, we, I, I sometimes feel like we don't always spend enough time on this, but you know, providers really should make sure that anytime they're they're actively um, uh, prescribing new medications to patients, that they should be aware of what the patients are taking, right? The drug that a person, if you're going to prescribe a medication, make sure you know what they're on. Um, not only just prescription medications, but also over-the-counter medications as well. And with the over-the-counter meds, it can be more of an issue with, with post-exposure. So rotegavir and dolutegavir, these are the integrase-based inhibitors. These regimens end in Gravir, or these drugs end in Gravir. Um, these drugs can interact with what we call divalent or polyvalent cations. And so just examples of those are calcium, aluminum, uh, magnesium, and even iron. This, this can occur with iron as well. So when you're given like, for example, rotegavir, um, you can co-administer with like calcium containing uh, antacids. However, rotegavir cannot be administered with aluminum or magnesium antacids, laxatives or supplements. So it gets a little, little complex. And this includes drugs like malox, milk of magnesia, or other supplements that might contain these cations. And also the GI medication, sacralfate, which we often uh, will sometimes have patients on, is called carafate. This has a lot of aluminum in, in the drug, and this also can, can bind the raltegavir and prevent the drug from working. Dietegavir um, has to be given two hours before or at least six hours after aluminum or magnesium-containing acids, laxatives, and supplements. And then if it's combined with calcium, Antacids or iron, um, dietetic can be 
used together, but only if it's given with food. So, so you can imagine this can be really complex. So even, even just what I've just said in the last, you know, last couple of seconds here, it's complex, right? You really have to have somebody who knows kind of the ins and outs of it. And I think that's really where, you know, specialty HIV pharmacies, uh, you know, a specialist in pharmacy, and, and also providers who do this a lot, I think are usually familiar with most, most of this information. And I think that's really, um, that's really um, important. But, you know, reviewing the PEP guidelines can certainly, can certainly be helpful as well. And again, calling the consultation center if you need to, or even the local ATCs, which is what we're here to promote, right? The ATCs can certainly help out with all of this. And again, it's really, it's really a testament to what we do as, as, uh, as an ATC that we can certainly help patients and providers who are, who are in, uh, in, in this situation. I think that's it for PEP today, I think, right? So I think those are, the, those are some of the big things we, we wanted to get out and talk about for today. So thanks, Mariana. Thank you so much, John. I feel like we've covered a ton about what PEP is, who it's for, and how to properly administer this potentially life-saving medication. We really hope that you, our listeners, learned something new about PEP today. Before we go, we can also now announce an exciting bit of news. We have an email address. So if you have a question or a comment about anything we've talked about, either on this episode or previous episodes, or you just want to say hello, email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at N-E-C-A dot O-R-G. We'll read it all. And if we get any questions we think that others would benefit from hearing, we'll cover them on our next episode. To learn more about Nika AETC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, more about PEP and other topics, please visit us at www.nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you next time for the next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.